Chapter Thirty Four of The Magnificent Ambersons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Thirty Four. There was one border section of the city which George never explored in his Sunday morning excursions. This was far out to the north where lay the new Elysian fields of the millionaires, though he once went as far in that direction as the white house which Lucy had so admired long ago, her beautiful house. George looked at it briefly and turned back, rumbling with an interior laugh of some grimness. The house was white no longer. Nothing could be white which the town had reached, and the town reached far beyond the beautiful white house now. The owners had given up and painted it a despairing chocolate, suitable to the freight-yard life it was called upon to endure. George did not again risk going even so far as that, in the direction of the millionaires, although their settlement began at least two miles farther out. His thought of Lucy and her father was more a sensation than a thought, and may be compared to that of a convicted cashier beset by recollections of the bank he had pillaged there are some thoughts to which one closes the mind. George had seen Eugene only once since their calamitous encounter. They had passed on opposite sides of the street, downtown. Each had been aware of the other, and each had been aware that the other was aware of him, and yet each kept his eyes straight forward, and neither had shown a perceptible alteration of countenance. It seemed to George that he felt emanating from the outwardly imperturbable person of his mother's old friend, a hate that was like a hot wind. At his mother's funeral and at the Major's he had been conscious that Eugene was there, though he had afterward no recollection of seeing him, and, while certain of his presence, was uncertain how he knew of it. Fanny had not told him, for she understood George well enough not to speak to him of Eugene or Lucy. Nowadays Fanny almost never saw either of them, and seldom thought of them. So sly is the way of time with life. She was passing middle age, when old intensities and longings grow thin and flatten out, as Fanny herself was thinning and flattening out, and she was settling down contentedly to her apartment-house intimacies. She was precisely suited by the table d'hote life, with its bridge, its variable alliances and shifting feuds, and the long whisperings of elderly ladies at corridor corners, whose eager but suppressed conversations, all sibilance, of which the elevator boy declared he heard the words, she said, a million times, and the word she, five million. The apartment house suited Fanny, and swallowed her. The city was so big now that people disappeared into it unnoticed, and the disappearance of Fanny and her nephew was not exceptional. People no longer knew their neighbors as a matter of course. One lived for years next door to strangers, that sharpest of all the changes since the old days, and a friend would lose sight of a friend for a year and not know it. One May day George thought he had a glimpse of Lucy. He was not certain, but he was sufficiently disturbed, in spite of his uncertainty. A promotion in his work now frequently took him out of town for a week, or longer, and it was upon his return from one of these absences that he had the strange experience. 
He had walked home from the station, and as he turned the corner which brought him in sight of the apartment-house entrance, though, though two blocks distant from it, he saw a charming little figure come out, get into a shiny laudelette automobile, and drive away. Even at that distance no one could have any doubt that the little figure was charming, and the height, the quickness and decision of motion, even the swift gesture of a white glove toward the chauffeur, all were characteristic of Lucy. George was instantly subjected to a shock of indefinable nature, yet definitely a shock. He did not know what he felt, but he knew that he felt. Heat surged over him. Probably he would not have come face to face with her if the restoration of all the ancient Amberson magnificence could have been his reward. He went on slowly, his knees shaky. But he found Fanny not at home. She had been out all afternoon, and there was no record of any caller, and he began to wonder, then to doubt, if the small lady he had seen in the distance was Lucy. It might as well have been, he said to himself, since any one who looked like her could give him a jolt like that. Lucy had not left a card. She never left one when she called on Fanny, though she did not give her reasons a quite definite form in her own mind. She came seldom. This was but the third time that year, and when she did come, George was not mentioned either by her hostess or by herself. An oddity contrived between the two ladies without either of them realizing how odd it was. For, naturally, while Fanny was with Lucy, Fanny thought of George, and what time Lucy had George's aunt before her eyes, she could not well avoid the thought of him. Consequently, both looked absent-minded as they talked, and each often gave a wrong answer which the other consistently failed to notice. At other times Lucy's thoughts of George were anything but continuous, and weeks went by when he was not consciously in her mind at all. Her life was a busy one. She had the big house to keep up. She had a garden to keep up, too, a large and beautiful garden. She represented her father as a director for half a dozen public charity organizations, and did private charity work of her own, being a proxy mother of several large families, and she had danced down, as she said, groups from eight or nine classes of new graduates returned from the universities, without marrying any of them, but she still danced, and still did not marry. Her father, observing this circumstance happily, yet with some hypocritical concern, spoke of it to her one day, as they stood in her garden. "'I suppose I'd want to shoot him,' he said, with attempted lightness. "'But I mustn't be an old pig. I'd build you a beautiful house close by, just over yonder.' "'No, no, that would be like—' She began impulsively, then checked herself. George Amberson's comparison of the Georgian house to the Amberson mansion had come into her mind— and she thought that another new house, built close by for her, would be like the house the Major built for Isabel. Like what? Nothing. She looked serious, and when he reverted to his idea of some day grudgingly surrendering her up to a suitor, she invented a legend. Did you ever hear the Indian name for that little grove of beech trees on the other side of the house? She asked him. "'No, and you never did, either,' <laughs> he laughed. 
don't be so sure. I read a great deal more than I used to, getting ready for my bookish days when I'll have to do something solid in the evenings, and won't be asked to dance any more, even by the very youngest boys who think it's a sporting event to dance with the oldest of the older girls. The name of the grove was Loma Nesha, and it means they couldn't help it. Doesn't sound like it. Indian names don't. There was a bad Indian chief lived in the grove before the white settlers came. He was the worst Indian that ever lived, and his name was—it was Vendona. That means, rides down everything. What? His name was Vendona, the same thing as rides down everything. I see, said Eugene thoughtfully. He gave her a quick look, and then fixed his eyes upon the end of the garden path. Go on. Vendona was an unspeakable case, Lucy continued. He was so proud that he wore iron shoes, and he walked over people's faces with them. He was always killing people that way, and so at last the tribe decided that it wasn't a good enough excuse for him that he was young and inexperienced. He'd have to go. They took him down to the river and put him in a canoe, and pushed him out from shore and then they ran along the bank and wouldn't let him land, until at last the current carried the canoe out into the middle, and then on down to the ocean, and he never got back. They didn't want him back, of course, and if he'd been able to manage it, they'd have put him in another canoe and shoved him out into the river again. But still, they didn't elect another chief in his place. Other tribes thought that was curious, and wondered about it a lot, but finally they came to the conclusion that the beech-grove people were afraid a new chief might turn out to be a bad Indian, too, and wear iron shoes like Vendona. But they were wrong, because the real reason was that the tribe had led such an exciting life under Vendona that they couldn't settle down to anything tamer. He was awful, but he always kept things happening—terrible things, of course. They baited him but they weren't able to discover any other warrior that they wanted to make chief in his place. I suppose it was a little like drinking a glass of too strong wine, and then trying to take the taste out of your mouth with barley water. They couldn't help feeling that way. "'I see,' said Eugene. "'So that's why they named the place they couldn't help it.' "'It must have been.' "'And so you're going to stay here in your garden,' he said musingly. "'You think it's better to keep on walking these sunshiny gravel paths between your flower-beds, and growing to look like a pensive garden lady in a Victorian engraving?' "'I suppose I'm like the tribe that lived here, Papa. I've had too much unpleasant excitement. It was unpleasant, but it was excitement. I don't want any more.' In fact, I don't want anything but you. You don't. He looked at her keenly, and she laughed and shook her head, but he seemed perplexed, rather doubtful. What was the name of the grove? he asked. The Indian name, I mean. Molahaha. No, it wasn't. That wasn't the name you said. I've forgotten. I see you have he said, his look of perplexity remaining. 
perhaps you remember the chief's name better?' She shook her head again. "'I don't.' At this he laughed, but not very heartily, and walked slowly to the house, leaving her bending over a rose-bush, and a shade more pensive than the most pensive garden-lady in any Victorian engraving. Next day, it happened that this same Vendona, or Rides Down Everything, became the subject of a chance conversation between Eugene and his old friend Kinney, father of the fire-topped Fred. The two gentlemen found themselves smoking in neighbouring leather chairs beside a broad window at the club, after lunch. Mr. Kinney had remarked that he expected to get his family established at the seashore by the 4th of July, and, following a train of thought, he paused and chuckled. Fourth of July reminds me,' he said. "'Have you heard what that Georgie Minifer is doing?' "'No, I haven't,' said Eugene, and his friend failed to notice the crispness of the utterance. "'Well, sir,' Kinney chuckled again, "'it beats the devil. My boy Fred told me about it yesterday. He's a friend of this young Henry Akers, son of F. P. Akers of Akers Chemical Company.' It seems as young Akers asked Fred if he knew a fellow named Minifer, because he knew Fred had always lived here, and young Akers had heard some way that Minifer used to be an old family name here, and was sort of curious about it. Well, sir, you remember this young Georgie sort of disappeared, after his grandfather's death, and nobody seemed to know much what had become of him, though I did hear once or twice he was still around somewhere. Well, sir— He's working for the Acres Chemical Company, out at their plant on the Thomasville Road. He paused, seeming to reserve something to be delivered only upon inquiry, and Eugene offered him the expected question, but only after a cold glance through the nose-glasses he had lately found it necessary to adopt. "'What does he do?' Kinney laughed and slapped the arm of his chair. "'He is a nitroglycerin expert.' He was gratified to see that Eugene was surprised, if not indeed a little startled. "'He's what?' "'He is an expert on nitroglycerin. Doesn't that beat the devil? <laughs> yes, sir!' Young Akers told Fred that this George Minifer had worked like a hound-dog ever since he got started out at the works. They have a special plant for nitroglycerin, way off from the main plant, of course, in the woods somewhere, and George Minifer's been working there and lately they put him in charge of it. He oversees shooting oil wells, too, and shoots them himself sometimes. They aren't allowed to carry it on the railroads, you know. Have to team it. Young Akers says George rides around over the bumpy roads, sitting on as much as three hundred quarts of nitroglycerin. My Lord! Talk about romantic tumbles! If he gets blown sky-high some day, he won't have a bigger drop— when he comes down, then he's already had. Don't it beat the devil? Young Acre said he's got all the nerve there is in the world. Well, he always did have plenty of that. From the time he used to ride around here on his white pony, and fight all the Irish boys in Cantown, with his long curls all handy to be pulled out. Acres says he gets a fair salary, and I should think he ought to. Seems to me I've heard the average life in that sort of work is somewhere about four years, and agents don't write any insurance at all on nitroglycerin experts. <laughs> Hardly. No, said Eugene. 
I suppose not. Kinney rose to go. Well, it's a pretty funny thing. Pretty odd, I mean. And I suppose it would be pass around the hat for old Fanny Minifer if he blew up. Fred told me that they're living in some apartment house, and said Georgie supports her. He was going to study law, but couldn't earn enough that way to take care of Fanny, so he gave it up. Fred's wife told him all this. Says Fanny doesn't do anything but play bridge these days. Got to playin' too high for a while, and lost more than she wanted to tell Georgie about, and borrowed a little from old Frank Bronson. Paid him back, though. Don't know how Fred's wife heard it. Women do hear the darndest things. They do, Eugene agreed. I thought you'd probably heard about it. Thought most likely Fred's wife might have said something to your daughter, especially as they're cousins. I think not. Well, I'm off to the store, said Mr. Kinney briskly, yet he lingered. I suppose we'll all have to club in and keep old Fanny out of the poorhouse if he does blow up. From all I hear, it's usually only a question of time. They say she hasn't got anything else to depend on. I suppose not. Well, I wondered, Kinney hesitated. I was wondering why you hadn't thought of finding something around your works for him. They say he's an all-fired worker, and he certainly does seem to have hid some decent stuff in him under all his damn foolishness. And you used to be such a tremendous friend of the family. I thought perhaps you—of course, I know he's a queer lot, I know. Yes, I think he is, said Eugene. No, I haven't anything to offer him. I suppose not, Kinney returned thoughtfully as he went out. I don't know that I would myself. Well, we'll probably see his name in the paper some day if he stays with that job. However, the nitroglycerin expert of whom they spoke did not get into the papers as a consequence of being blown up, although his daily life was certainly a continuous exposure to that risk. Destiny has a constant passion for the incongruous, and it was George's lot to manipulate wholesale quantities of terrific and volatile explosives in safety, and to be laid low by an accident so commonplace and inconsequent that it was a comedy. Fate had reserved for him the final insult of riding him down under the wheels of one of those juggernauts at which he had once shouted, "'Get a hoss!' Nevertheless, Fate's ironic choice for Georgie's undoing was not a big and swift and momentous car, such as Eugene manufactured. It was a specimen of the hustling little type that was flooding the country, the cheapest, commonest, hardiest little car ever made." The accident took place upon a Sunday morning, on a downtown crossing, with the streets almost empty, and no reason in the world for such a thing to happen. He had gone out for his Sunday morning walk, and he was thinking of an automobile at the very moment when the little car struck him. He was thinking of a shiny laudelette and a charming figure stepping into it, and of the quick gesture of a white glove toward the chauffeur, motioning him to go on. George heard a shout, but did not look up, for he could not imagine anybody's shouting at him, and he was too engrossed in the question, Was it Lucy? He could not decide, and his lack of decision in this matter probably superinduced a lack of decision in another, more pressingly vital. At the second and louder shout he did look up, and the car was almost on him. 
but he could not make up his mind if the charming little figure he had seen was Lucy's, and he could not make up his mind whether to go backward or forward. These questions became entangled in his mind. Then, still not being able to decide which of two ways to go, he tried to go both, and the little car ran him down. It was not moving very rapidly, but it went all the way over George. He was conscious of gigantic violence, of roaring and jolting and concussion, of choking clouds of dust, shot with lightning, about his head. He heard snapping sounds as loud as shots from a small pistol, and was stabbed by excruciating pains in his legs. Then he became aware that the machine was being lifted off of him. People were gathering in a circle round him, gabbling. His forehead was bedewed with a sweat of anguish, and he tried to wipe off this dampness, but failed. He could not get his arm that far. "'Never mind,' policeman said, and George could see above his eyes the skirts of the blue coat, covered with dust and sunshine. "'Amblitz be here in a minute. Never mind trying to move any. You want him to send for some special doctor?' "'No,' George's lips formed the word. Or to take you some private hospital. Tell them to take me, he said faintly, to the city hospital. All right. A smallish young man in a duster fidgeted among the crowd, explaining and protesting, and a strident-voiced girl, his companion, supported his argument, declaring to everyone her willingness to offer testimony in any court of law that every blessed word he said was the God's truth. "'It's the fellow that hit you,' the policeman said, looking down on George. "'I guess he's right. You must have been thinking about something or other. It's wonderful the damage them little machines can do. You'd never think it. But I guess they ain't much case agin this fellow that was driving it.' "'You bet your life there ain't no case on me,' the young man in the duster agreed, with great bitterness. He came and stood at George's feet, addressing him heatedly. I'm sorry for you all right, and I don't say I ain't. I hold nothing against you, but it wasn't any more my fault than the State House. You run into me, much as I run into you, and if you get well, you ain't going to get not one single cent out of me. This lady here was settin' with me, and we both yelled at you. Wasn't going a step over eight mile an hour. I'm perfectly willing to say I'm sorry for you, though. So's the lady with me. We're both willing to say that much, but that's all, understand?' George's drawn eyelids twitched, his misted glance rested fleetingly upon the two protesting motorists, and the old imperious spirit within him flickered up in a single word. Lying on his back in the middle of the street, where he was regarded by an increasing public as an unpleasant curiosity, he spoke this word clearly from a mouth filled with dust and from lips smeared with blood. It was a word which interested the policeman. When the ambulance clanged away, he turned to a fellow patrolman who had joined him. "'Funny what he says to the little cuss that done the damage. That's all he did call him. Nothing else at all. And the cuss had broke both his legs for him, and God knows what all.' "'I wasn't here then. What was it?' "'Riff-raff!' End of chapter.